there was there was a professor from Notre Dame who who uh, created Rico in the late seventies. Certainly, mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani uh, popularized it in New York with with mafia families in the eighties. You know, Giuliani was a horrible prosecutor and that he was incredibly unethical. He got reversed more times than probably any U.S. attorney in New York history. But look, the government's still pulling these kind of games today. There's constant reversals and cases being dismissed federally because of um, you know unfairness or breaking the law. And the reason it is because you've got prosecutors that are usually in their 30s, early 40s, and they're just so ambitious that they care more about winning than they do about fairness and the law. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. So this episode is actually a two-parter because we really went to town on this one and it was super long and I was like, you know what? And it's so full of just in my opinion, riveting explosive information that I was like, all right, we have to make this a two-parter. My guest uh, on this two-part special episode of which one is airing now that you're listening to, and then the next one will be next week, is with famed or infamous, however you want to look at it, famed criminal defense attorney Jeffrey Lichtman. Jeffrey Lichtman is basically the entire dream team of the 90s that represented O.J. Simpson in his murder trial rolled into one attorney. I mean, I I can't stress enough the significance of the criminal cases that Jeffrey has taken on as a defense attorney. And he is just a master in the courtroom of dismantling the prosecution's evidence. And whether or not you agree ethically or morally with Mr. Lichtman's MO and the way he operates in the courtroom or the clients that he chooses to take on and defend, I mean, that is a whole other a whole other conversation. So with me, when I have guests on my podcast, I'm not there to, to agree or disagree with them. I'm not there to pass judgment. I'm there to facilitate them telling their story because I think that it's an interesting story that needs to be told. And I think it's a story of a person's life that will be just fascinating to my audience. So these are just some of the clients that Jeffrey Lichtman has has represented in criminal court. So it's his one of his most famous clients was John Gotti Jr., who he famously got acquitted. And that is a very interesting case because some people feel that John Gotti Jr. deserved to be convicted on racketeering charges and myriad other charges associated with the Gambino crime family and his alleged activities therein. But my personal opinion, and this might be a controversial opinion, is that the government pursued what I guess I would call a Gotti witch hunt, which started obviously with John Gotti Jr.'s father, John Gotti Sr., I think that the flamboyance, ego, and the celebrity of John Gotti Sr. was such a thorn in the government's side because they did not like the fact that he became a celebrity. They didn't like the fact that he became an American folk hero. That really, really bothered the federal government. And so they really wanted to make 
not only John Gotti Sr. pay for that beyond the alleged crimes of the Gambino crime family. I think they wanted to make him pay for becoming a celebrity, if that makes any sense. And I think that their irie and the way that they felt about that, the humiliation that they felt about that, they it was almost like they took it personally. And then they put that same zealousness when they when they went after John Gotti Jr., even though I personally feel it, it was not deserved. I feel it really was a witch hunt of sorts. That's just my opinion. Take it or leave it. You know, I'm just saying. So he famously got John Gotti Jr. acquitted on all charges. He famously represented El Chapo, which one of the most notorious alleged drug dealers in the world. He represented Andrew Russo. Andrew Russo is a very interesting case because Andrew Russo is uh, an alleged part of the mafia, but Andrew Russo was an elderly client who they felt, well, Jeffrey felt that he would not be able to withstand being in jail while he was awaiting trial because of his age and because he was infirmed. And any mafia guy I think historically, I don't think any of them have ever been released on bail. I think they always hold them because of their resources and their connections. But Jeffrey, as far as I know, was able to get Andrew out on bail. Uh, and Andrew actually passed away before he ever made it to trial. So that's an interesting story as well. Uh, Jeffrey also represented Fat Joe, The Game, um, an infamous art dealer named Inigo Philbrick, and that case is actually going on right now. I believe he was just sentenced. He's a very high-profile art dealer, and he was caught allegedly embezzling millions and millions of dollars from clients. So yeah, check that out. Google that. Inigo Philbrick. I believe he was just sentenced in May. And now uh, Jeffrey is actually representing rapper K-Flock. So this is another high-profile criminal defendant who is a, a well-known rapper. And it, it, what's interesting is what he has to say about K-Flock was actually very interesting because, of course, when you read about these guys in the news, the first thing that always comes to your head is like, oh, you know, typical, whatever, you know, it's, it's the guns and the, the, you know, this is how the rap culture is and, and all of these things. But what people don't understand is that in that world, you are met with a lot of vitriol. You are met with a lot of confrontation. You are met with a lot of so-called fans or people who have a bone to pick with you because they are either jealous or maybe something happened in the past that they don't like and they don't like that now you're successful or you have money. So what happens is a lot of these guys get confronted by very violent situations and then they're put in these strange predicaments where they have no choice but to try to defend themselves. I remember back in the 90s that happened to Snoop Dogg. I think it was a situation where somebody confronted him, somebody came at him violently, and I think his bodyguard or somebody in his entourage shot and killed somebody. And then Snoop was on trial, and he eventually, I believe he got acquitted on all charges. But what happens is these guys are often confronted with violent situations, and they're backed into a corner, and they're in a situation where they have no choice but to defend themselves in some way. So 
there was a killing that took place. So K-Flock, I believe, is charged with murder. I think that's that's the charge. I don't know if it's first-degree murder or second-degree murder. I'd actually have to look that up. But Jeffrey is now representing him, and we'll see what happens with that case. So this is a very long intro, but can you blame me? I mean, <laughs> this is, this is uh, some, pretty, some pretty crazy information here. So with all of that being said... Sit back and relax on the edge of your seat, of course, and listen to part one of my interview with famed criminal defense attorney, Mr. Jeffrey Lichtman. Okay, so Jeff Lichtman. So I would I mean, in my estimation, you are one of the most well-known criminal defense attorneys in the country right now, if not the most well-known. Um, you know, so I mean, your, your clients have been uh, John Gotti Jr., El Chapo, which by the way, like that blew my mind, uh, the game fat Joe. So, so you defend a lot of high profile alleged criminals or celebrities who get into legal trouble. What is your take on being a criminal defense attorney? Is it like, do you have to believe that your client is innocent or do you just have to believe that you can come up with plausible deniability, plausible reasonable doubt and, and protect their constitutional rights. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, what, I know what, what you're saying. I know you're okay. saying. You know, I tell this to clients, every client that I meet that's sitting in front of me freaking out, mm-hmm. thinking that why would I want to try hard for them if I think they're guilty? So they'll come in and a lot of times they'll give me some cockamamie story that doesn't make any sense. And I tell them this every single time. I don't care if you killed your mother. I don't care if you killed everybody on your block. As long as you didn't kill my mother, I'm okay with that. Because it doesn't matter to me whether you're guilty or innocent. I'm never even going to ask because it doesn't matter. What matters is what is the evidence? Can we win the case with the facts that exist as such? That's all that really matters. And I'm not, you know, I get hate mail. hmm Pretty much every day, I would say, or calls, or sometimes they visit, you know, they come to visit me, you know, which is why I've got so many guns. But, you know, I'm not here to make a value judgment on the people I represent. The people that are critical are usually people that have either criminal records themselves, or if they, God forbid, needed a criminal lawyer, they'd be on their knees begging me to represent them. I'm here simply to give people their constitutional rights, give them a zealous defense. That's all I'm here for. I'm not here to be God. I'm not here to be the judge. I'm just here to be an advocate. And that's what everybody deserves in America. You know, I think that there's just this feeling that, you know, how could you represent these people? You know, this is wrong. These people should, you know, be killed. You know, go fuck yourself. Go live in Iran if that's how you feel. If you feel that we don't all deserve, uh, you know, uh, the best defense. So that's all I care about. Now, if I ask, I don't think in 31 years of practice that I've ever asked, did you do it? That's not how I would ask the question. I don't care. I mean, if they want to tell me, they want to get it off their chest, if they want to view Mm -hmm. me as their, you know, as their priest or their, you know, their clergy. God bless them. You know, I'm, I'm certainly willing to listen to you within reason, you know, in terms of how much time we have, if you want to get it off your chest. What, if all I'm asking you a question, I want to know, listen, the government's saying this, you know, mm-hmm. how do we respond to that? 
If that includes them having to say whether or not they did it, sometimes it comes up. But for the most part, it's completely irrelevant. I'm not even curious. I'm not even curious. So you know, because some people would say, okay, Jeff, look, I believe that some crimes that you have dealt with have been victimless crimes, but we'll get into that in a second. But when there is like a tangible victim, do you feel empathy for the victim or are you, or do you feel like I am serving the purpose of upholding the constitution and people's civil rights and human rights in this country? I mean, like what weighs heavier for you? That's a, that's an interesting question. I'm going to give you an honest answer. Okay. Sometimes it depends on who the victim is. I don't like to see innocent people harmed. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I put on my lawyer cap, I don't have the luxury of of necessarily feeling strong empathy. Look, I've represented a fellow who was convicted of molesting four little boys. Their Mm -hmm. kids were my kids' age, approximately. They were brothers when they were supposedly raped by my defendant. I didn't do the trial. He was convicted in 30 seconds. I handled the sentencing and I handled the appeal. When I walked him out of jail of a 27-year sentence, did I feel a little bad for the victims? Of course I did. Yeah. Did it stop me at all in what I was doing? No. If you put a loaded gun to my head, would it have stopped me from what I was doing? Pull the fucking trigger. There's no way it would stop me because I'm there for one purpose and it's going to take a lot to stop me. It's going to take a lot. Do I have empathy? Sometimes there are certain cases I don't like doing. I won't do if an animal is harmed. I know that sounds crazy. I just told you that I'm Willing but to children. represent somebody who, yeah, I know. Okay. I'm not, so what, not real what's proud ra- of that. What's the rationale? I just, I guess I just view animals as a completely pure and innocent. And I don't view human beings that way, although certainly children are um, okay. innocent. So I probably should feel more empathy. But mm-hmm. when you're a defense lawyer, if you're any good at it, you're not concerned about the other side. You can't be. You don't have the luxury. To win these cases, it's almost impossible. I win trials other than Chapo case. I haven't lost a trial since 2008. Okay, I win my trials because I'm, I don't get bogged down in, in the bullshit. I don't get bogged down in the politics. I don't get bogged down in the press. I don't get bogged down in any of it. I'm going to go there and I'm going to kick the shit out of you. And if you can stop me, God bless you. Good for you. So now I'm here let to me, win. Let, let's go back some years. I want to start by talking about the John Gotti Jr. trial. So from what I read and from what I could see that he didn't deny that he took over for his father, John Gotti senior as head of the Gambino family. But what he was stating is that as of 1999, he had retired from the Gambino family because he had that luxury because of who his father was, that he was able to step away without repercussion. And, um, but they were trying to get him, what was it just like the umbrella of Rico? Is that what it was that they kept trying? It was Rico, attempted murder, fraud, extortion, racketeering. I mean, you name it. I don't know that there's ever been a time in my life that I've had more joy was during that period of not just the trial, Mm -hmm. but working on the trial. My kids were born on August 16th, two weeks after John was indicted on this you know, on that case, they were premature 10 weeks and they spent nine weeks in the hospital, my twins. And during that period, the trial began a year after he was indicted. Mm -hmm. 
it was the most stressful time of my life, but also the most amazing time. I look back on it and I wish I could be back, you know, to that period. Um, so what, what was it about, I guess, like vindicating him and getting his life back that you loved so much? Well, first of all, I was completely focused. I focused mm-hmm. on two things, my kids and that trial. Now, I had, if you can believe, I had another trial after uh, that case uh, a few months later. I had to work on that one as well. But I was so laser focused. I've never been so focused in my life. I've never had such joy doing the work. I was in my apartment you know, with the kids, and all I did was work and then walk into the room and check on them. And um, John was such an easy client to represent that I would go visit him in prison at a prison that's now closed down because it's so bad where Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. And every time I would visit him, he would say to me, you don't have to be here. You know, go see your kids. You don't have to be here. Send somebody. We actually hired somebody whose sole job in the case was to carry messages back and forth if I needed an answer to a question for John or he had any question for me. And nobody expected me to win that case. The government was laughing in my face, laughing. They thought because they had just convicted his uncle, Pete, the year before, same courthouse, same prosecutors, virtually the same charges. They got a conviction in two minutes, and they just assumed that it was going to be the same with me. And I remember thinking as I was preparing for this case, man, they're going to be so upset when they see what comes. They're going to be so shocked when they see what I'm going to do to them. I never felt I was losing that case. I just felt also when I was at the trial, my kids, as I said, were, were so sick for so long, they turned one during the trial. And I felt like I was fighting for them as well. You know, and this is a true, true, true story is that when I fight for these clients, I'm fighting for them secondarily. You can fight for somebody else and you'll fight a certain level of energy. You'll have that energy. But when you're fighting for yourself, when you're fighting you know, life or death for yourself, mm-hmm. you fight a hell of a lot harder. And I was fighting for me. I was fighting for my kids. And, you know, John, as I said to John at the beginning, I said, look, you know, this is a, an incredibly difficult case. We're going to win. You know, you'll see because you're going to see that if I put the energy and effort in that needs to be done, we can win this. I said, I'm fighting for me. I'm taking you along for the ride. I said, I'm going to take you with me and we're going to get you out of jail. But I'm being honest with you that I love you as a brother. And I do. I mean, I I love John like a brother and I still do to this day, but there is nothing like fighting for your children. And, you know, my kids were were born uh, right after he got charged. I had Mm -hmm. to deal with the hospital the scary parts of having kids that are born two pounds and change, oh, identical my God. twins. Yeah, I didn't and, know that, by the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when I was at that trial, man, there was nothing stopping me. And they had the three best prosecutors in the building. One of them became the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York, and I mopped the fucking floor with all three of them. And I've never had an easier trial. I've never had more fun in my life. I've never felt more determined. And sometimes I wish I could get back to that. It's hard to feel that level of, you know, that locked in intensity. I've, mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever had it since then. I've, I've, God knows I've won plenty of trials since then, 
but I suffered during the trials. There were a lot of pain. I didn't suffer yeah. at all during that trial. It was nothing but pure joy for me. Let me ask you this. Did you feel that the government just simply had a bone to pick with him as the descendant of, or did they have a legal leg to stand on? I mean, was it, were the charges legitimate or were they padded? Oh, sure. The, the charges were legitimate. I think the problem the government had was, you know, they were too enthusiastic perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they viewed Gotti as a trophy as, as they always do. They also had the dry run with the uncle. So they just assumed if it worked so perfectly here, mm-hmm. like less than a year ago, of course, it's going to work perfectly for us. And they, they, they're pigs at times. And they felt that this was going to be the trial that was going to catapult them professionally. And to me, you know, once we thought of this defense, this withdrawal defense, and I remember where I was when I thought of it. When you say withdrawal defense. Withdrawal from the mafia. Okay. Withdrawal from the mafia. Okay. You know, it was really an intricate, you know, everything about law, if you're good at it, is math. Everything is math. Everything, if you're good at math, you'll be a good trial lawyer. There's not that many things you have to be good at to be a good trial lawyer, but math is one of them. Okay. Because you need to be able to see completely down the field. It's not just what's in front of you. You've got to see 16 chess moves ahead of you. And with John's case, I'm sitting with him in Raybrook, which is a prison upstate where he was before he got charged. And he's telling me about how much he hates this life, how he wants to be out of it. And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening. And I remembered that he had been in jail for more than five years at the time that he was charged. Now, Mm -hmm. here's here is where the government lost the case. And it never really has been amplified, at least publicly. I guess people aren't interested because it's a little too complicated. Mm-hmm. The government had to prove in a RICO case, they could go back 30 years for all the things that John had supposedly done illegal. Right. But in order for a RICO, for a conspiracy, they're allowed to go as far back as they want, past the statute of limitations, as long as there's one act that occurred within five years of when they indicted him. Okay. So John was in jail serving, a, I think, a six or seven year sentence. I didn't represent him on that case for um, another racketeering case. And they could have charged him any time during that period, but they wanted to get every drop of blood out of him. They wanted him to complete that sentence and then charge him so they could get more time for him. By doing so, they waited until after he was in prison for over five years. So all of the, he had to have one criminal act during that five-year period while he was sitting in jail. The government's evidence was we got messages back from John from Raybrook Prison to do this, to do that, and therefore that was enough. Well, it wasn't. Had they charged him during that five-year period before it ran out, he would have been convicted because they would have been able to use acts that occurred while he was on the street before he went in during that for that sentence. And I'd be sitting with him and he'd be telling me how much he hated this life. And I said to him, did you ever tell anybody? He said, yeah, anybody who comes to visit me, I tell that I'm out of this life. I don't want anything to do with it. I said, did you ever tell anybody over the phone? He said, no, you know, the phones are taped. I said, well, guess what? The government, as we found out before he got indicted, had taped 
the visiting room, the lawyer visiting room, and all of the visits that he had with people that came to see him. Why? Because they wanted to catch him on something. What they did is they ended up destroying their case. Because on those tapes, when he's speaking to people that came to visit him, he's complaining to them the way he was complaining to me, including people who were alleged to be part of organized crime, part of that family. So Mm -hmm. my position was, and I remember I was in the shower thinking about what a defense, if this could work. And I was like, holy shit. All he did was tell people that he wanted out during that five-year period, and the government taped it. So they thought they were going to catch him. They ended up catching our defense, which we had no proof of otherwise. And I remember I got off, uh, I got out of the shower. I immediately picked up the phone. I remember I was still dripping wet. And I called up, you know, the finest legal mind that I had ever known, my old boss, Jerry Shargell. And I said to him, look, here's this defense. I didn't tell him that it was for John, but this is what I'm thinking about doing in a case. Does it work? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, it's complicated and you're going to have, you know, it's going to be tough with proof, but theoretically it works. So once we had that as a defense, I realized I no longer had to combat every criminal act that occurred from all these decades that they had charged him with. All I had to focus on was the five years to show that he had withdrawn from the mafia and that he hadn't committed any crimes during the five-year period. And as one of the jurors said after, we were sure we were convicting him of something. Right. And then after we took the vote, we couldn't believe it that we couldn't convict him of anything. And he was acquitted of few charges as well. Wow. And then that was the end of it. They tried him again. They couldn't convict him. The defense was too perfect. I mean, it's, you know, I, I wish that all my defenses were as perfect as this one. But, you know, sometimes in life, you know, sometimes the sun is just shining on your face and you have a good day. And yeah. that defense... I knew that they could not convict him. I didn't think I could ever get perhaps a full acquittal, but they tried. They couldn't. It was too powerful of a defense. It worked too perfectly. And the amount of time that I put in on their cooperators, you know, they thought they had like the greatest cooperators ever. There was one cooperator who they said was as good as Sammy Gravano. I never had the opportunity to cross-examine Sammy Gravano. I wish I had because he had done so well in so many cases. But the way that I practiced was so different from my four, you know, fathers, so to speak, mm-hmm. it was never enough just to go in there and cross-examine a witness well. I couldn't bear emotionally, to this day, to cross-examine a cooperating witness, somebody who was bad, who was making a deal with the government in order to, you know, for their freedom and to testify against somebody. I could never emotionally bear the thought of getting beaten by one of them. It was just too overwhelming for me. And And it's to this day it is. So the amount of time that I put in was so much more than what was done on the same witnesses the year before. The lawyer Mm -hmm. did the work. Frankly, his work was an embarrassment. The government thought that this is how defense lawyers work. It wasn't. I got letters that he sent from prison. I spoke to his ex-wife. I spoke to anybody and everybody. I got my hands on every financial document. I dragged in his lawyer and had him in the hallway prepared to put him on the stand to testify. And I remember when I cross-examined them, it was over two days. And I was so jacked up to destroy this guy because he was the main witness. He was John's supposed close, closest friend. I was t- too emotionally involved. And for the first four hours, it was just this horrible back and forth of fighting. Me fighting, him fighting. 
you know, it was horrible. Who was the informant? The cooperator named Michael DeLeonardo, also okay. known as Mikey Scars. And he was really well prepared for me. Not a stupid guy. And the government had already seen what I had done to a bunch of their cooperators already, destroyed them. And this guy was prepared. But I was too emotionally involved. And me beating the crap out of a cooperator and him beating the crap back at me is a loss for the defense. And I remember during the case thinking, I can't believe that I've gotten this far and I'm going to blow this trial on this guy. And there was a break and we had a night to prepare for the next day. And my father actually had come up to watch me. The only time he'd ever seen me in a trial. And I felt that I had embarrassed myself that first day. I mean, I'm sure I scored a lot of points. Um, I'm sure if you asked the client, he would have thought that I did a great job. If you would have asked the government, they might have thought the same thing. But I knew that I hadn't done what I needed to win this case. And I just calmed down. I, I talked to myself and I take the best counsel from myself. I don't speak to anybody else. When I have a real problem in life, I don't talk to anybody but myself because I don't I trust do anybody thing. else. Yeah. I, I totally get it. I do the same exact I, thing. I sit in a room and I have a discussion with myself. I do and, I said, and I said, am I going to lose this case because of this fucking animal? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to go in there and destroy him? And I said, don't take it personally. Don't take the bait. Don't have pride. I have no, I have no, I'm in no position to have pride for this right. case. I'm there to win. I'll, I can be an arrogant prick after, but I have to win the case first. And I went in the next morning. And I absolutely obliterated him. And he was trying to bait me every 30 seconds. He'd make a comment. He'd say something under his breath. I let him do what he had to do. And I just pounded him, absolutely obliterated him and won the case right there. And during the next break, he stood up as the jury was leaving. We all have to stand up and wait for the jury to file out. And I was 20 feet from him. I was approaching the judge to to ask the judge a question. And I was sort of getting a head start. And Mikey Scars was still on the stand, standing up. And he looked right at me and I was, you know, 20 feet from him. And he raises his hand and does this to me, points his finger like he's pantomiming shooting a gun. And I looked right at him and then looked at the judge. You saw the whole thing. And I said, I said, it's a good thing his finger's not loaded. And I just destroyed him. (laughs) And that was the end of Mikey Scars as a witness. What are your thoughts on the government's use of cooperators to convict other criminals? Because to me, it's a statement of we're not here to keep the public safe. Because if you let animals out on the street who have committed multiple murders, you know, as an example, to convict one guy, What does that say about what the government thinks of the public and protecting the public? Well, that was a a theme that I brought up. That's not exactly ethically proper to argue. It's called jury nullification, where you're telling the jury, I want you to acquit, not based on the evidence, but based on the fact that the government has done some bad things. It's not appropriate. I do it in every case. I do it a lot in every case. You're going to have to stop me to make me stop doing it because I know what juries are concerned about. And that's what I said. I said, Mikey Scars has killed four people. Joey D'Angelo has killed multiple people. Frank Fapiano, multiple people. I said, if you stack the bodies, I said this in the summation, 
if you stack the bodies of all their victims, it would reach the ceiling of this courtroom. John's not accused of killing anybody. I said, they're getting out of jail. As soon as this trial is over, they're getting sentenced and they're getting out of jail. They're going to spend two, three years in prison. And what I did is I wanted the jury to realize that the bad people were the government and they shouldn't feel obligated to convict. This is all psychology. And I remember when I was cross-examining one of the witnesses, Joey D'Angelo, who flipped weeks before the trial was scheduled to begin. So I had almost no time to prepare for him. What I had to do was make him into such a monster. And I talked about one of his murders where he shot a guy in the back of the head inside a car. And I went through it painstakingly slow. He has this little boyish face. And I really liked him when he was a defendant. I mean, I became friendly with him because we met each other so many times in prison preparing for the case. His lawyer was one of my closest friends in the world from Long Island. And Mm -hmm. Barry and I were, you know, we were looking at this case. We were trying this case together. Then his client flips. And now I've got to cross-examine somebody who I consider to be a friend, you know, as much of a friend as you can have in a situation like that. So he comes out examined and he catches my eye and he gives me a look like, I'm sorry, man. You know, what am I supposed to do here? And I looked at him and I was like, you know, I get it. Once I got my hands on him, though, that was it, man. It was it. There was no more niceness. And I went through every stage of that murder. I said, you knew the man had a family. Yes. You knew that he had little children. Yes. You didn't care. You didn't do this for a personal reason, did you? No. You did it because you were told because it was business. This is just about money. Yes. And I said, you took out the gun and you aimed it at the back of his head. And when you fired the gun, it was loud, wasn't it? He said, yeah. I said, you were almost like lost your hearing because you were inside a car and it was a closed in space. Yeah. I said, his teeth flew out of his mouth, didn't they? He said, yeah. I said, they hit the windshield, didn't they? He said, yeah. I said, you heard his teeth hit the windshield. Didn't stop you, did it? No. I said, you fired another bullet, didn't you? Yeah. I said, his brains were all over you and the windshield and all over the car, weren't they? Yeah. I said, you'd do it again if you had to. I would. Yeah. The jury was just like, you know, they were <laughs> horrified. But that's what you have to do is you have to let the jury see. You know, to be a good defense lawyer, you have to understand what people need to hear to acquit. Right, of course. And when, when it was over and Joey D'Angelo like wobbled off the stand, he looked at me like, what did you just do to me? Why did you do this? You're my friend. And I just was like, get the fuck away from me. Because that was all I cared about. I don't care about Joey D'Angelo. I cared about John Gotti Jr. and winning the case. What are your thoughts on the RICO law and the way that it's used and the way that it's been used over the past few decades? You know, it's horrible because, you know, it allows the government so much leeway in terms of time, how long they can go back, how barely attenuated some of the crimes are that they bring in and they say that they're all part of the, you know, a a RICO enterprise. And it allows them to bring in so many different people as defendants, some of them that haven't even met each other. And they're sitting on trial with each other. So I think it's an abuse. But, you know, look, if you're if you're good at what you do, you don't worry about the rules. You just take mm-hmm. the rules that are given you and you fight. There's a, there's many laws that I think are unfair on the books. But, you know, again, all I can do is, is play the game with the, 
the rules that are handed to me and, and, and go forward. And it was, it was Rudy Giuliani who came up with the idea of like, like uh, resurrecting this law that was on the books that nobody had thought to use. Right. Wasn't it him? Well, it was, there was a professor from Notre Dame who, who uh, created Rico in the late seventies. Certainly mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani uh, popularized it in New York with, with mafia families in the eighties. You know, Giuliani was a horrible prosecutor and that he was incredibly unethical. He got reversed more times than probably any U.S. attorney in New York history. But look, the government's still pulling these kind of games today. There's constant reversals and cases being dismissed federally because of, um, you know, unfairness or breaking the law. And the reason it is is because you've got prosecutors that are usually in their 30s, early 40s, and they're just so ambitious that they care more about winning than they do about fairness and the law. And, you know, that's okay for me, because when you start thinking that way, you're going to cut corners to win cases. And it allows a defense lawyer to, to find the issues, to find the problems, the softness in their case. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, have no problem. If the government wants to act unethically, you know, I'm going to find it and I'm going to stick it up your asses at trial. Yeah, because what they're actually doing is they're creating in their overzealousness and in their attempt to cut corners, that's actually helping to mount your defense. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. You know, it does. It certainly helps because they do go overboard. And Mm -hmm. a juror is not, you know, a sophisticated legal mind. And jurors feel the same way. Like, what are we doing? Why why is this guy here next to this guy? And if if you can hit on those things that you know that bothers a juror, that's mm-hmm. how you, you turn them. And sometimes you have to turn them one at a time. You know, I've got 12 jurors that are in front of me. I've got usually six alternates. Some of those alternates are going to end up being on the jury because somebody will drop out during the trial. Mm-hmm. And I've got to persuade well, 16 people or so. And I look at them at the beginning and I'm looking right in their faces. Who can I reach? Who hates me and will never listen to me? I don't have to reach all of them. On some of these cases, I've gotten more hung juries on trials than I think probably any lawyer in New York. Explain the advantage of a hung of a hung jury. Well, a hung jury, the government usually does not want to try the case again. Right. First of all, it helps you because they do try it again. We've seen your best evidence. So I, there's no surprises. I've seen your witnesses, and the next time it's going to be worse for you. If I've gotten this far that I've gotten a hung jury, clearly a jury doesn't believe your witnesses. It's going to be worse for you the second time. In addition, because they don't want to try the case again, they're more likely to give a low deal. I've had hung juries in cases with mandatory jail time. Impossible cases. That the only reason it goes to trial is because they're offering me so many years. We then try the case, get a hung jury, and then they give us a deal, no jail. I had an abortion doctor in Queens. They were offering five to 15 years in prison. He probably would have spent 10 years in jail had he taken the deal. They were sure they were going to win. There was almost no defense. We got a hung jury after a month-long trial. And in the courthouse, before the jury had finally been discharged for good, the prosecutor panicked. And when I went and offered, asked for an offer that would have gotten the defendant out of jail in 10 months, he took mm-hmm. it. Um, the jury ended up coming back within seconds later, and I suspect with a conviction, but by then we had gotten the, the offer, the plea offer after the hung jury, and that was the end of the case. So you can really do well if you focus on which juror is listening to you. 
I do research on the jury. If I don't have a case where the jury is anonymous and I know their names, well, I'm going to find out their life story and what I can, you know, go towards in the argument to resonate with them. It only takes one. You know, I've had one case. I remember with the case that I had uh, with a this fat Jewish guy who assaulted a cop. It was in Rockland uh, was the, the trial a few years ago. And all the jury, it was in uh, uh, Clarkstown, which is a eminently white town. Everybody in the town is either a cop or is married to a cop or is the son or daughter of a cop. And the cops that were testifying were these blonde haired, blue eyed, honest people. And what happened is they said, look, we didn't want any trouble with the guy. His wife, his ex-wife called us, said that he had a knife. We showed up in this little town. We just told him to take his hands out of his pockets so we could see that he had no knife. And then we were going to leave. We weren't looking for any trouble. He wouldn't do it. We had no call. We had nothing else we could do but to see if he had a knife because we had to make sure that everybody was going to be safe. He told us he had no knife, but the wife said that he had a knife. So we had no choice. We walked up to him. We pulled his hands out of his pockets. We all tumbled on the ground. He didn't hit us. We just were taking his hands out of his pockets. He held his hands in. We all fell on the ground. And when I got up, I tore a ligament in my thumb. He says, I know the guy wasn't looking to hurt me. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to hurt him. And the problem is that the law is very clear. If a cop is doing his job and in the course of doing his, his job, is injured by that defendant, even without the intent to injure him. Mandatory two years in prison. Wow. It's crazy. So we're getting, we're getting, we're starting the trial. I went Mm -hmm. to go see the judge. I had just finished the abortion doctor the week before. And I said to the judge, I need more time. And I had asked for more time in a letter before the trial. He said, come to court the day of the trial starting. And uh, we'll talk about it. So I thought that I would get it. I walked in and he said, I'm not giving you any more time. He said, and tell him that if he gets convicted, he's getting five. I said, what? I was shocked. And I said, you know, the guy didn't intend to hurt him. It was just a a ligament. I said, you know, what are we doing here? Give the guy, you know, we'll take a felony. Just don't make him go to jail for two years. He says, go tell him right now. We're starting at one o'clock opening statements. Luckily, it was a Thursday because it enabled me. We were only trying the case four days a week. So we opened on that Thursday in the afternoon, and I didn't have to examine my first witness until Monday. But I had to do an opening completely cold without fully prepared. I had done a lot of the work already, but I wasn't ready for the trial starting. I walked out to see the guy. I'm like, Randy, he says that if you don't take two, he's giving you five. I said, I don't know how you're going to win this case because. They're not going to say that you tried to hurt him, and the guy does have a torn ligament in his thumb. He said, I'm not going to jail. I'll take a chance. So I opened up at at 1 o'clock that afternoon. We started cross-examining, starting the evidence on Monday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seven days of trial later, I had there was one juror that there was 11 people in the jury were white, and there was one juror was a black guy from the islands, and I did research on him and saw that he was arrested And he felt that he was arrested illegally. He sued the police department from Westchester County, one of the the local police departments, not the one that had this case. And the case was dismissed. And I could imagine that he was pretty pissed. He claimed that the police beat him after he uh, was arrested. 
And I had claimed that the police had beaten my client as well after he was in the holding cell. My entire defense, I looked at one juror the entire time. The other 11 were just staring at me with eight in their eyes. And I looked at him during the summation and I said, what happened to you shouldn't have happened to anybody. I said, what's happened to Randy, you have an opportunity to stop it, to show police that they can't act this way. I said, you're never going to get a chance like this in your life that you have now. The judge was apoplectic. The prosecutor didn't know what to do. The jury is out day after day. And I look, I've done this long enough. I, I knew what I was doing. And when the jury came back hung, I went to speak to the jury and I went to the black guy and I said, you know, thank you for doing this. And he says, thank you. He says, look at them. He says, why do you think it was just me? And I look over and there was three other jurors, including this one woman whose father was a cop. And she said, I hated you when this trial started. She's like, I love you now. I was one of the four. And, um, you know, it was amazing. We got four out of the 12. They didn't try the case again. They gave him, you know, some lesser offense and he didn't have to go to jail. But this is how you have to do it. You have to focus on every juror and establish a relationship with them. I think you and I have discussed that in the past where you, you said that the psychology of the jury, and I think you've also like just unabashedly discussed in the past, as I remember you telling me this, that you also try to leverage the media to get to the jury as, as much as you can, which you would think like, you know, they say, don't discuss the case. Don't look at the news. Da, 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 da. I mean, Go into that a little bit. How do you leverage the media for the advantage well, of your of your clients? It's usually before the trial starts. I mean, keep in mind that your jury is out there. They're mm-hmm. out there, you know, in the public. They may not know they're going to be the jury, but they're out there reading the newspaper. So with John Gotti Jr., you know, while the jury was being selected, we had a, a front page of the post, page two and page three. So it was the front page, and then you turned the paper. And it was all a huge interview with him and about how he's a family man and how he does carpool for his kids. He goes to soccer practice and it talked about what a human being he was as opposed to some, you know, crazed, murderous thug. And the jury got to see that. And, I, you know, did it help? I don't know that it helped, but I can tell you this, you know, when you're fighting these very difficult cases, 95% of the lawyers will just mail it in. They'll, they'll do some work. They'll make it appear as if they're working hard, but they don't kill themselves. I view it as every last point that I can win, I've got to win. I can't lose a single point on the table because if I leave one point on the table, that could be the point that gets me over the top to win the case. So I've got to be maniacal in my own way and mm-hmm. use every resource. Look, the government does it to us. The mm-hmm. government uh, leaks stuff to the press. They certainly make it difficult for a defendant to get a fair trial. They have press conferences where they trash the defendant. You know, they're doing all sorts of stuff. Plus, the media is looking to kill the defendant as well, usually. So Mm -hmm. you have no choice but to fight back. And look, you can be a good defense lawyer and just get destroyed, which is what the government wants from you. You know, give us a good fight. Make it look like you really cared. and. Let's beat your client. Let's stick him in jail and we'll all leave, you know, as friends. 
There's one of the top criminal defense lawyers in the city, if not the country. And I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But after a very big trial, I had done some of the post-trial litigation. And the entire file got to me. And after the trial was over, was a copy of a letter that he had sent to the prosecutors apologizing to them for his co-counsel for their arguing so much and how much he respected the prosecutors in the case. Yeah, this is what normally exists in New York. And this is a guy, this is a guy that when I took John Gotti Jr. said to me, you're making a mistake. Don't take this guy. It's going to hurt your career. When I took El Chapo, don't take this case. It's going to hurt your career. When I took another fellow named Jimmy Rosemond, a very uh, famous music producer, don't take this case. It's going to hurt your career. I just was thinking, God, could you be a bigger pussy? You know, it's like, <laughs> I was you know, say, could, no balls. You know, yeah. No I mean, balls. seriously. And that's, and that's how he fights the case. Listen, he's won big cases, but if you look back, a lot of the cases that he's won are cases that should be won. He doesn't take the cases. The cases that, that should be lost, he loses. Let's talk about El Chapo. So this is what went through. My father and I were actually joking about this because we read that you took that case. I forget when, what year it was, but it was not that long ago. And my father, for anyone who doesn't know, I don't know if we mentioned it earlier, that we are cousins. So our families know each other. When my father heard that, he said to me, man, you know, I hope he does right by him. Otherwise, he has to sleep with one eye open. You know, like that that's the folklore. That's the myth. Like if you have if you have a high profile criminal client, alleged criminal client who is thought to be like the absolute boogeyman of boogeyman, right? El Chapo. And you don't get him an acquittal or you don't get him a good deal. You better sleep with one eye open. Like you're, you know what I mean? Like, is that a myth that that these guys operate like that? No, I think that defense lawyers have been killed. And certainly in Mexico, many defense lawyers were killed supposedly by Chapo's organization. But I find that the people that get killed are usually shitty lawyers. They're lazy. They don't do right by the client. And the clients aren't dumb. And I've never been concerned about a client. I never was concerned about Chapo. I ended up really getting along with him. I mean, I love the guy and his family as well. I represented his wife. I represent his kids right now as well. We really hit it off. And the reason why we hit it off initially, because believe it or not, we had some things in common. But ultimately, well, what did you have in common? Well, he has twin girls that have the birthday the day before my twin boys. That was one of okay. the things we have a serious love of guns. So surprisingly that he has a love of guns. Well, I do as well. Um, okay. In fact, uh, I suppose I should maybe I shouldn't show you. Well, it's right over there, but you don't want to see okay. that. Um, this is my gun room that we're in that I'm doing <laughs> this interview on. No shit. Um, OK. Yeah, this is my gun room. It's a pretty. Right over there is a pretty scary. Uh, so site. you don't keep anyway. you don't keep it in a safe like you're you have them displayed in. The, oh, I've in got the case. guns in a the safe. They're in, they're in all sorts of safes, but there's other stuff that's, okay. um, that aren't in safes. Anyway, so Chapo and I really hit it off quickly. Yeah. But there was one major problem, and and I can tell you this: during the trial, he wanted to fire one of the lawyers because he was incompetent, mm-hmm. and I had begged him not to hire one of the lawyers because. He was incompetent and we all knew it, Um, but Chapo had a reason to keep him on. And then once he saw him cross-examine, he realized that that was a mistake. But when I went to go see him initially, Mm -hmm. he only, I think he saw about 20 or 30 lawyers. 
what I had to tell him was one horrible secret. And have you listened to any of my podcasts at all? I did. I, I was actually listening to the one about Andrew Russo, but we'll get to that. We'll get to but that. Yeah. Well, there was there was one about Chapo, and mm-hmm. you should you should listen to that one because it was a pretty scary moment. Now, the one thing that was positive was that when I saw Chapo, it was always behind glass. It wasn't like a regular legal visit because they had believed he was so dangerous. Usually, you have a contact visit with you get put in a room in federal prison and you just talk to the guy. Chapo, he was locked in one side, I was in the other side. And I had to tell him a horrible secret that had been a secret for years. Okay, so wow, right? Wow, did you see my face? If you're watching on YouTube, did you see my face during certain things that Jeffrey was saying to me? I mean, my jaw was on the floor and when I looked back at the footage, I was laughing and not, I mean, I just want you guys to know like the times that I was kind of laughing or smiling was because of shock. It, It wasn't because I'm thinking, oh wow, you know, this violence is just so funny. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's the shock of it all it's almost like you're you're when you hear these when you hear these grisly details of some of the some of these crimes that have taken place uh that that jeffrey has dealt with whether it was a client of his or whether it was a government cooperator who was on the stand who we had to cross examine the details are so over the top They're so grisly. They're so crazy that something in your brain just goes, no, no. You know, it's almost like it's like when you're watching, you know, Goodfellas or something like that. And and you see some of the things that are going on in the movie and and you're just it's almost becomes like a cartoon. Like it's it's weird. It's 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 kind of disturbing in a way that. We've glamorized violence in our culture, whether it's video games, whether it's movies, whether it's people being obsessed with the mafia and following these cases and following these trials. You know, it's when it comes down to it, violence is the bane of our human existence. I mean, it has no place in human society. But I I think that these cases are fascinating because you can pull back the curtain and you can see what's really going on, how the United States government operates, what they do to try to get convictions in these cases, and what's really going on behind the scenes. You know, who are all the players? How does it all break down? How are people convicted? How are people acquitted? You know, I mean, you you have to admit it's fascinating stuff. I mean, that's why I was a criminal justice major in college, and there's a reason why, because I, I remember I started off as a theater major and with a communications as a minor, and I don't know, I just, I had to take some electives and I ended up taking some criminal justice courses because I knew people that were criminal justice majors and I thought, oh, okay, I'll see what that's about. And the, the classes were just so fascinating that I, it was, almost became like an addiction. I just had to learn more about the way it all worked. You know, so I, I hope that you guys take it for informational purposes. I hope that it was interesting and wait till you see what's coming up in part two next week. That's all I'm going to say. So take care, guys. Make it a good one. And I will catch you on the next one. Peace. Peace.